Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. I knew I was going to be feel welcome here this morning, even before I got here, just because I'd listened to some of the podcasts and it was so refreshing just to see how Christ-centered uh, you guys are in your, in your praise and worship and in your edification through Scripture. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of it today in a small way. I think so much of Mike and what he's doing here as, uh, as he shepherds. And I thought I'd start this morning, speaking of shepherds, with uh, Psalm 23, just as a, a prayer of dedication for the time that we're going to be able to share this morning. This is a prayer. I'll say it in the way that my parents taught me and that we taught our parents. You might be familiar with the old King James style. Join me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me on paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I thought of that especially this morning because I was thinking about my daughter who used to always, when I would go to their room to, to pray for them and to bless them before good night time, uh, she would always say, she wanted to do this, this psalm, and she'd always say, cup runneth over, Daddy, cup runneth over. <laughs> I don't think she even knew what that meant, but for some reason that just rolled off of her tongue and off of her heart. And when she was very, very small, cup runneth over, Daddy. And I thought of her especially this morning. She's in the middle of the Camino de Santiago right now, a really tough part of a, a holy pilgrimage trail over in Spain, hundreds of miles. And uh, it's challenging. So I was especially thinking of her this morning in the midst of that. And then I thought about this. You know, life is full of tumult. And, and it's a tough journey. At times especially, it's very painful. And it's good to know that green pastures that the Good Shepherd lays us down in are not just for the future rest, but for a rest that we can have now in Christ, and that Jesus continually calls us to rest in Him in the midst of a broken and often painful world. In 1998, I stood next to the coffin of a 18-year-old young man. I was a young life leader, and he was my closest high school friend. And 10 days before, he had shared his testimony at our Young Life golf tournament. And then he was, right after graduation, killed by a, a drunk driver. And I stood there, and I was asked to give the, the eulogy. And I was really scared about that. And, uh, 
And yet, as these thousands of people literally crammed this place to hear somebody give a word of hope, I chose the passage to preach on that day that I'm getting ready to share with you today. Marcelo was an amazing young man, and his mom had raised him um, basically by herself. And as I preached this message, later I thought, actually, <laughs> I hope I did the right thing. And I think you'll see what I mean. This is out of Luke chapter 7. Not long afterwards, Jesus went into a town called Nain, accompanied by his disciples and a large crowd. As they approached the city gate, it happened that some people were carrying out a dead man, the only son of his widowed mother. A large crowd of town folk was with her. Now notice this, the exact same words are used for the crowd following Jesus and the crowd following the funeral, uh, the funeral column, coming to the, both coming to this convergence point at the town gate. One was following Jesus who was so full of life. The other was in deep, deep grief. We don't know how old the boy was. It says man, and, and some versions call him boy. We know from Jesus' direct words to him that he was a young man. I imagine him about the age of 14 years old. That's how I imagine him. So you could hear it described as a boy or as a man or as a young man. These two crowds came together, two large crowds. And did you note that the boy was the only son of his widowed mother? This woman had been through such tremendous grief in her life. And of course, as you know, during these times, sin was oftentimes associated with someone's hardships as if they had done something to deserve it. And I can even imagine some people in the crowd saying, what did she do to have such a cursed existence? It wouldn't be out of the ordinary for that thought to cross the minds of people in those days, and maybe it still crosses the minds of us today at times. What did she do to deserve this? But as these two crowds came together, the Lord saw what was happening. And his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Now that sounds a little bit strange. It could even be interpreted as rude or even maybe harsh. Don't cry. But you see, Jesus was thinking of what he was going to do. And he was mentioning in those words, I believe, this is not the end, but to be continued. Then he walked up and put his hand on the beer. The funeral beer is the, like the, the stretcher that 
the people would put the body on and carry out. And in those days, it was considered to be uh, an act of uncleanliness to touch a dead body and to prepare a dead body. People had to be cleansed from that by the local synagogue in order to enter back into fellowship. And so when Jesus reached out and touched the funeral bier, the funeral beer, the bearers, it said, stood still, meaning they were shocked that anyone would come up and interrupt this and actually reach out and touch the corpse or the beer. He stood up, put his hand on the beer while the bearer stood still, and then he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up <laughs> and began to talk. And Jesus handed him to his mother. Think about this. Now, if you're the guys that are carrying the coffin and the, the, the stretcher there, and you see Jesus come up, you're standing still, and then Jesus says, and if it's, this, it's the same phrase that he uses to raise Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, where he says, Talitha kum. And that's how we know this is a young man. Young man, I tell you, get up. It's a similarity to the other resuscitation story that occurs. But can you imagine the boy sits up on his, on his funeral beer, and can you imagine maybe he swings his legs over to the side and sits up. And if I'm the, the pallbearers, at that point, what are you going to do? Just say, oh, gosh, he just raised that boy from the dead. You're probably going to drop the thing, right? I mean, you're going to be in so, such shock that you're probably going to drop the, the, the uh, casket. And Jesus, it says, he, he holds the boy as he probably as his feet hit the ground. And this is beautiful. And hands him to his mother. Everyone was present and awestruck, and they praised God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has come to help his people. Eugene Peterson in the message says, They were quietly worshipful, and then noisily grateful. I love that. That moment, you know, you can just catch that moment where at first they're just completely in awe, and then they could not stop talking and praising Another interesting thing about this account is that it doesn't mention anything about the woman's faith. It doesn't mention anything about anybody else's faith. It doesn't mention anything about the pallbearer's faith. It just is a pure gift that Jesus gives in this moment. Here's a woman blinded by grief and loss. Never would she expect something like this, this kind of a pure gift. Not only is the Talitha Kum, not only is Talitha Kum a similarity to another one of Jesus' stories, rising, raising someone from the dead, but there's another similarity, and I believe this is implied. It says that Jesus' heart went out to the woman before he said to her, don't cry. What that tells me is that this this inner compassion, this deep-seated compassion that comes from the guts of Jesus, and that's the meaning of the Greek word, that comes from the guts as he is in solidarity with her in her grief, I believe 
brought tears to his eyes. And I believe that the only reason he was able to say, don't cry, is because he himself was crying in that moment. So I realize that in choosing this passage for Marcelo's funeral, it might have come across as cruel even, because Marcelo didn't get up out of the coffin. Showing the contrast could have made the grief a lot worse. My only thought is that maybe the Spirit gave me the assurance that the hidden reality of broken relationship restored would be a salve in the midst of the pain. Because indeed, the restoration between mother and son was already affected, in a sense, even if it was hidden in the heavenly realms. The resurrection truth of Jesus Christ applies to both of them already, even if it's not yet manifest. It's the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ, in fact, that provides the frame, the big picture, signified in the words, don't cry. Again, I don't think Jesus would have said this without his own tears. And I don't think I could have preached this message on that day unless I myself was grief-stricken over Marcelo's death. In fact, Marcelo's mom told me later that she appreciated my message, but more than that, it was my tears during the eulogy that really blessed her. Yes, we grieve, and we grieve with those who grieve, but we grieve not as those without hope. Importantly, the big picture is not meant to make us less compassionate or less sensitive to pain in the here and now, just the opposite. Jesus knew what he was going to do, and yet, it says, Jesus' heart went out to the woman, and he connected with her in the depth of his own gut and wept, I believe. The big picture of resurrection gives us hope, but the small, immediate picture can be so painful. I said above that I questioned preaching the contrast of the young man from Nain rising while Marcello did not. I made the case that the contrast is good news, as counterintuitive as it may be, when delivered with compassion. After all, this contrast is the power of the gospel. But we should always and also continually acknowledge that it's the contrast which explains why grief is so grievous. Deep down, humans know that pain, suffering, and brokenness is not the way things really are. Even if they don't have words to describe it, I believe all human grief is rooted in this contrast between how things are here in the world and how they are in the kingdom of God. In comparison to the reality of life, you could say that death is actually unreality in comparison. But the fact that it is unreality doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It hurts like hell. And again, the reason it hurts so badly and wounds so deeply is precisely because it isn't real in the end. Walking by faith in Christ and not by sight, we can say that the end is good. And if it's not good, it's not the end. 
Now let's look again at the two responses of the crowd, which are theologically rich. And as a theologian, love to unpack these. Both of these statements are packed with irony because at face value, they both, I'm sure, were not meant by the people to be taken literally, and yet they have deep literal meaning. I'll take the second one first. God has come to help his people, they exclaimed. Well, they probably meant, gosh, this guy, wherever he came from, he's a godsend. Or, you know, I'm glad God sent us this guy. God really is at work. Or God has come really and truly, literally, to help his people. This shows that God has the not only the power to help, but the desire to help. You know, sometimes people have the desire to help, but they have no power. Other times they might have the power to help, but they have no desire. Jesus represents the heart of God in that he has the desire and the power to help. This is not just God's love in action. This is God himself in action, y'all. This is beyond what even the Jews expected in a Messiah. God has come literally to help his people, every single person he created. Secondly, a prophet has arisen amongst us, they said. <laughs> if we adopted the non-literal interpretation, we could say that the people noticed that Jesus was an emerging prophet who obviously has a special connection to God. No contemporary would think anything different. But I can see Luke as a researcher writing years after the aha moment of the big picture, gathering his sources and hearing these statements about that occasion at Nain and thinking, they said the prophet, a prophet has risen amongst us? Dang right, a prophet has risen. You folks in Nain didn't know the half of it. See, by Luke's time of writing, God had come really and truly and a prophet had risen, really and truly. As Luke says later, employing the exact same Greek word about Easter morning, the Lord is risen. Here in our passage, Luke is anticipating, I believe, the truth of the gospel of John, where Jesus claims that he is the resurrection and the life. This self-description of Jesus occurs at Lazarus' tomb, where we know he wept, and before he even raised Lazarus from the dead, this was his self-description. Jesus is the resurrection and the life then, not because of his own resurrection or because of some other miracle like the one with Lazarus, but because he simply is the resurrection. He comes into this world as the resurrection and the life. The one says, John, the Baptist, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus reveals who he is to us in our time, but importantly, who he is, is who he is outside of our time too. Theologically speaking, Jesus raising this young man at Nain is not simply a foreshadowing of his own resurrection on Easter morning. The raising of this child is inside of Jesus' resurrection before Jesus' resurrection occurs on the historical timeline. And just as important that Jesus is in solidarity with this boy in his rising is the fact that he is also in solidarity with this boy in his death. In fact, Jesus is in solidarity with every person who has ever died. Like all people who die and who come back to life or who are resuscitated, 
in this perceptible realm. This boy who's raised at Nain will someday die again. That's kind of a bummer when you think about it. But that's why it's important to consider that all death is inside of Jesus' death. Jesus' death embraces all who die before, during, and after Jesus walked on this earth. And all who are miraculously raised in Bible times or at any time are inside of his once and for all resurrection. You see, Jesus represents every person in this story and every person in this room today. He is your way and your truth and your life. I'll say that again. He is, and I don't need to know anything about you, your way, your truth, and your life. Not because you decided it, but simply because he is. Jesus is your life, and Jesus is your death. Jesus Christ died for all. And anyone for whom Christ died has been crucified with Christ. Christ died for all, Scripture tells us, and therefore all died. Jesus defines life by being it, and he defines death by absorbing it and boundarying it. Human history, we could even say, is his tari. Story, history, his story. So let's go back to the passage to finish up. We notice that there are two large crowds heading toward the gate. Borrowing again from John's gospel, we remember that Jesus said, I am the gate. That's where the two crowds converge. He is the crossroads. He's the intersection of human life and death. Which crowd will win? Well, the slam dunk answer is, in Christ, when death and life meet, life wins every time. In light of that, which crowd will wins might seem like a silly question. The one Jesus is in, of course, kind of sounds like the children's sermon, uh, you know, where Jesus is the answer for everything. But the way that Jesus wins is different. The way Jesus wins is by entering in. This account at Nain gives us a beautiful picture of the incarnation. Jesus enters in, doing the unthinkable, making himself unclean, representing not only life but death. Jesus doesn't take shortcuts. He's teaching us that to be resurrection means, he is also, means one also has to be death. They go together, after all. Death is implied in resurrection. Jesus defines both. He is always Jesus of Nazareth, and I've heard Mike emphasize this a singular Palestinian existing in the first century under Roman colonial oppression and in the predicament of the human condition. But he is also God, the God who has come to help and represent all of his people by dying on the Roman cross. So which crowd is Jesus in? Both. Because he defines human life and human death within himself. And because all our humanity is in Jesus, it is in Jesus that we discover who we are. All good theological anthropology starts and derives from Christology. In fact, I would encourage you to read your Bible this way by asking where Jesus is in each of Jesus' encounters. If you're in a Bible study about one of Jesus' gospel encounters, ask folks where they think Jesus is. 
well, Jesus is there standing next to the woman at the well who thirsts. Was that the only place that he is? Is Jesus also in solidarity with the woman who thirsts? Is he present there too? I thirst. Is Jesus present with this woman in the crowd who's lost her son? Blinded by grief? Wondering maybe if God has forsaken her? Feeling abandoned by God? Jesus is there. Jesus is her life. His life comprehends the existence of every person in every encounter. The mystery of Christ pushes us beyond the slavery to spatial categories, obviously. Here in this encounter, Jesus is himself, and he is the boy. He is therefore the one person in the vanguard of each crowd, and he is also every person in each crowd. So which crowd are we in as defined by Jesus? The life crowd? The sin and death crowd? Yes. Consider the following verses, all from Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all have been justified freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death for all, and the gift of God is eternal life for all through Christ Jesus. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. God gave all people over to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Those are from Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 5, and Romans 11. The gist of all this, folks, Christ is your life. Christ is your death. So which crowd are you in, the death crowd or the life crowd? Yes! This is an exclamation of faith. I ask you again, which crowd are you in, the death crowd or the life crowd? Yes! Everyone is in both crowds. In fact, if you can't get past this point, if you cannot exclaim yes to both questions in that one question, I'm not sure you can really grasp the good news. Think about it. How can you know it's true for you if it's not true for everyone? What did you do to make it true for you and not others? Another way of looking at this is that the two crowds we are in represent our false self and our true self, our wrong self and real right self. Because we've been created and redeemed in Christ, everyone has a true self in Christ. Like the boy at Nain, we are all part of Christ's death and resurrection. This is eternal life, and it is pure gift. Finally, I want to point out that at the end of our account in Luke, there's no mention of the two crowds. There's only one crowd in the end. The scripture says all the people exclaim, God has come to help his people. It uses the word all. There is a day when we will all come to account face to face with Christ. The Bible points to that space as the day of judgment. How long it is, I don't know, but I know that it can't be measured by the flat line of a hospital monitor. It's an in-between time before any of us enters the unadulterated heavenly kingdom. 
Imagine it. There is Jesus at the gate. And there you are in your false self and true self. All of humanity is there. And all will fit through the gate. But there's only one problem. Even though it's big enough for all persons ever created to fit through the gate, our false selves won't fit through. Our false selves won't fit. Our false selves, Scripture tells us, have been crucified with Christ. So to allow our false selves, Romans 6, 6, so to allow our false selves through the gate would be in effect to undo the cross. On the day, the extent we've had, we have self-identified with our false selves will be exposed to the degree that we have self-identified with our false selves. It's really good news that no one proceeds past judgment to unadulterated heaven without repenting of our false selves. It's really good news. There's no repentance, however, without recognition. It starts with the recognition that you have put yourself in one crowd, maybe the life crowd, and others in the death crowd. So that you are in one crowd, but not the other. Or you place them in the one that's not very good. And you placed yourself in their good one. You've otherized people. You've created an us versus them, which is bad theological anthropology, and to me, not the gospel. That's why I mean you have to see yourself in both crowds if, you have, if you're going to know the good news. I call this confusing world that we're in presently the first heaven. We don't see clearly here very often. Metanoia or repentance, again, doesn't mean that I'm sorry. It means seeing clearly and being changed by seeing clearly, being transformed by seeing clearly. And in this world that I call the first heaven, full of first heaven problems, It's confusing. Heaven, I call it first heaven because heaven is where Jesus is. And, heaven, and Jesus is here, no doubt. He suffers with us and he gives us help and hope. But I do not believe in this first heaven, the age of confusion, that Jesus expects us to see fully clearly. Judgment day, what I call the second heaven, is the realm of perfect clarity. That's the, pers the personal time to recognize, to face things, to deal with things. That's where you'll know, that's where you will know that what you've done to others, good or bad, you've done to Jesus. And that's where you will know that what others have done to you, good or bad, they have done to Jesus. Jesus is the only one, in fact, in position to judge us because he's the one who loves us the most and understands our pain better than anyone. He understands the pain that prods the perpetrator. You see then, re repenting and believing, our eschatological activities first and foremost. That's where the recognition will fully take place. There we will have our doubting Thomas moment, our hand in Jesus' wounded side. Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and believe. He did not say people will not have a chance 
to see. You see, second heaven clarity is why we preach in the here and now. And to whatever degree belief and repentance happens here, it points to there. By the Holy Spirit, we can have transformational clarity now. And the Spirit actually allows us to look forward to the judgment. When our false selves are shown to be burned away like dross or blown away like chaff. Anyone who says this just puts things off to the end misses the point. The fact that judgment is real then means it's already real now. All the ethical accountability we need is in place. And in this age of confusion, he, the Holy Spirit, can bring to bear the clarity of Holy Spirit differentiation between right and wrong, our false and true selves now. We can know there is no need to fear the shadow of death, for thou art with me. In this age of craziness and confusion in the good shepherd, we are already resting in green pastures now. Did I tell you? In Hebrew, the word Nain means green pastures. There, where death loses its sting, we will have all, all have the opportunity to see clearly just how strong the truth of our lives in Christ is over against the falsity of the liar. Scripture tells us that sharing Christ's sufferings, we also share in his glory. Most of all, in the spirit, we get to share in Jesus' relationship with Abba, Father, where with gratitude we continually say, cup runneth over, Daddy. Cup runneth over.